Welcome to the Motorsport and Driver Development Show. This is Keto. And I'm Katie. And we have a really exciting show on tap today. I think it's really exciting. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. I would call it electrifying. <laughs> Good one. Um, but first, we'll start with everybody's favorite section. What's going on? Well, last weekend, we finished up the last race of the season at the Rainier Rumble Rallycross at the Eden Claw Expo Center. It was a new venue for us. It was a grass field, so it was more traditional style rallycross. Uh, surface held up great. Um, there's a lot of rolling hills, a couple little bumpy sections. Sounds like people had a great time. Um, we had a great, great turnout. Obviously, we sold out uh, the event. Um, it was a lot of fun. So I raced it as well. So that was a lot of fun as well, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had some stress leading up to the race day. Right. There was some unexpected heavy rain in Enumclaw for about a week, week and a half prior to the event. So we had some game time decisions to make about whether or not we would have the event. We were sort of wondering if we would end up having to cancel just by the volume of rain that fell. But right. the beauty of um, renting a, a pasture that has been packed down over the years and has good drainage meant that we, even after a lot of rain, could have a good event. So yeah, it had a lot of wind too, which helped, helped, yeah. helped dry it out. They had kind of a windstorm after a rainstorm. So yep. that helps dry it out. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the surface held up great. We yeah. Were, it was a lot of fun. Yep, we lucked so. out with the weather. We are already talking about a race at that venue for next year. Yep. I'm really excited about that. So that wrapped up our regular season. Normally this is when we take it off season, but we are doing winter racing this year. That's right, starting so, next month. Starting next month. So um, registration is open on that for I think another five days or so give or take um it is sold out but it's not oversold i think there's one person on the wait list so if you're still interested get yourself on the wait list there tends to be a couple of last minute cancellations right before registration closes so don't lose hope um and if you are interested in working the winter series we have a handful of course worker positions that are paid positions that are available um it's four events, so once a month you can come out to Dirtfish, work the course, make a little money. Um, so there's a, a we'll link in the show notes to that, but there's also a link on our website to apply. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, so that brings us up to the point that the Winter Series is a race only, not a race work format. Yeah. So just remember that when you're signing up. Yep. Yeah. Um, Dirtfish is offering some instruction. If you want to sign up to have an instructor in car with you on race day um, or rent one of their cars or rent one of their cars yeah even yep even if you've already signed up you can rent a dirtfish car if you haven't signed up you can sign up with one of theirs um or yeah you can have a, an instructor in car with you for the race um or we'll, both or both i can't believe it's already the end of our normal series yeah it went fast it did go fast and there were so many moving pieces i'm surprised we had a i think we ended up having seven events which just feels like a miracle right i think we set out to have 10, right? 10 or 11 but that included yeah. our series down the west coast which didn't end up happening so onward and speaking of onward in today's episode 
we have um, Ben Hempstead on. So Ben is a mechanical engineer, but he also rally crosses with us and you get to hear his story, but he built an electric Baja Beetle. He did not build it for the purpose of rally cross, but it turns out he built the perfect daily driver rally cross car. And so um, he breaks down the build and things he learned and some tips and you and you and him get into talking about you know what's different about an electric car and yeah it's a good discussion it is a good very discussion. informative yeah so um ben hempstead rally cross driver and engineer coming up next hope you guys enjoy the show Welcome to the Motorsports and Driver Development Show. My name is Katie. And I'm Keto. And today we are joined with Ben Hempstead, who is a mechanical engineer and a project manager in the aerospace space. But more importantly, he's the proud owner of an electric aha bug that he rally crosses. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Keto and Katie. I'm really excited to be uh, with you for the next little bit and talk about this experience. Yeah. Yeah, us too. This is going to be really fun. I think we just start at the beginning and talk about how you even got the idea to do this build. Sure. Yeah, I had not heard of Rallycross uh, before this this build. And uh, it was interesting. My kids and I uh, were watching TV. They were 12 and 14 at the time. And we're watching the hot rod shows on TV. And they looked at me a little skeptically and said, do, do people really like roll those jalopies into their shop? And, and you know, 28 minutes later, it rolls out a hot rod. I'm like, well, it, it takes more time in real life. But yeah, lots of people do that. And uh, the kids said, well, could we do something like that? And I'm like, we could totally do something like that. And then I realized, now I'm signed up for a project. So that's, that's kind of how I got started was, uh, you know, putting our time and money where our mouth was. And um, I, I latched on the Volkswagen Bug because it's kind of the classic get started, fix up a car project because it's so simple and parts are available. Um, you know, they, parts are cheap, right? But you need a lot of them, it turns out. So, yeah, you need a lot of them. Um, so we thought about it a while. And I thought, well, I don't really want to end up with a, with a Volkswagen. You know, we could fix up a bug, and, but I don't really want to, you know, what am I going to do with a bug? And uh, then we were out at a soccer game out in Lake Stevens uh, in the fall, and there was a really rough Baja in the parking lot. And the kids are like, what is that? Like, that's a Volkswagen. I mean, it was literally painted with, like, house paint with a roller, and it had sheets, curtains of paint. It was purple and silver and green and... It was really, really rough, but they're like, that is so Mad Max and cool. We love it. So I thought, well, we, we could build a Baja. And I'm like, okay, that's getting pretty cool. And then I was talking to my friend at work who's done some electric conversions, and he said, you could make an electric Baja. And it's like, okay, now we're into something that really appeals to my engineering sense and would be a really interesting thing to explore. And uh, it turned out to be a great daily driver. Um, so that's how the project got started. So did you find a bug just in regular shape or did you find one that already had the Baja kit on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we thought we would go look for a Baja and convert it. We thought that'd be the way to go. Um, but what we found is that all the Bajas out there have been jumped, crashed, set on fire. They're, you know, they're, they're super rusty and rough and none, we couldn't find any that looked like a good platform to start from. So after a day of driving around in the Kitsap Peninsula, you know, meeting people and looking at their project cars, um, my buddy said, you know, you just, just try to find a clean beetle and start from that, you know, and, and well, that'll make for an even more interesting project and we can build it the way we want. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 
Now, by the end of the day, we'd picked up a, a nice little white uh, 1969 Beetle from a family out in um, Shelton whose um, daughter, it was their daughter's 16th birthday gift car, but it was so unreliable, she couldn't get to work and school. So they needed to get her a you know Toyota or something. Um, so, uh, so we picked up that car and then uh, basically tore it all down and started from there. So you bought the like the Baja kit, you cut the nose and you know all that stuff. Did it all? All that stuff. Yeah, it's. I think the project is really kind of two phases. Um, there's a there's a restoration and conversion, and then there's I'm sorry, there's a yeah restoration and conversion to Baja, and then there's the conversion to electric. So we did an assessment, um, and, and part of this was I just I wanted to do some sheet metal work at home and teach the kids to weld and whatnot. So we stripped it all down and um, I got a great book um, by a former Baja 1000 um, competitor who won his class four or five times in class five and a few others. And he kind of lays out all the prep you need to do to build a, a functionally raceable Baja that's not a, like a cosmetic car. He says, don't build a cosmetic Baja. Like, don't build something that looks like it could jump but would fall apart if you did jump it. It's like, that's not cool. Um, and so I'll include a link in my materials for a link to this guy's book. It's 25 years old now, but all the info in it is really great on how to prepare the car. So we took it apart. We replaced the rusty metal pans and, and whatnot. And as we built it back together, we welded in the reinforcements that he recommended. We changed the suspension with his recommendations. We added this and added that. And then um, built the electric part in kind of towards the end, just as it went back together. Instead of putting the gas motor back in, we, we put the electric motor in at that point. So how did, you, the, how, how did you decide what components you were going to put in there? I mean, what, you know, the motor and the batteries and the controller, like how did you come up with that? <laughs> well, as Katie mentioned, I'm a mechanical engineer, uh, which means I, you know, and I try to avoid electricity. Uh, I, I actually don't like to work with moving parts I can't see. Uh, so I thought, and my, and my friend who's done these conversions said, well, here's, here's my spreadsheet. I spent four months of evening time in the winter picking out all the components for my first conversion. And it was, it was interesting and I learned a lot, but I made some mistakes and I had hardware that didn't work out and I had a lot of you know, restarts. He said, if you go to evwest.com down in California, they have the kit. And it's essentially the bill of material of everything he ended up with, but it's all laid out for you. And you bas basically just put your credit card in and you get a conversion kit in the mail. So I thought that's very attractive. Now I don't have to figure out what charger I need to go with what controller, with which, with which motor, et cetera, et cetera. So schematics and instrumentation and wiring and everything you need can be had from EV West. And it, and it really was everything you needed. I'd say, well, okay, I'm an engineer. So I, I, I made, yeah. Um, I'd say uh, their kits are very detailed. They have a kit for the standard Beetle and a different kit for the Super Beetle because it's just a little bit different and there's a different one for the 911 and the um the 914 and the kia and all of that all all the air-cooled cars um i'd say it's 90 percent of what i needed and it's 100 percent of someone who if they wanted to build an electric car conversion from an air-cooled car you could do it in two or three weekends um they're really great people and they're so busy that um, they'll let you just download the bill of material and the schematic. And if you want to go find the stuff and do it yourself, you're welcome to. They're, they're, they're happy to sell it to you with a markup, but they'll also just let you have the information you need. Um, so, yeah, yeah that, was, that, made, that made I got two boxes, one with all the hardware and another one with all the batteries in it, and it worked out great. 
So I want to take two steps back. And you talked about the Baja conversion. I imagine there might be a handful of people who don't even really know what that means or entails. Sure. Okay. So if you look at the picture over my shoulder there, um, you know, the, the, the middle, there's our car, uh, subject of the hour. And, you know, sort of the middle 75% of it is, is a Volkswagen Beetle, but it's kind of missing the front and back. And so people who are under uh, a certain age really don't know what, what these things are. Um, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm 50 and, and it was something that was a thing when I was a kid. But you get much uh, younger than me and people are like, what is that? So what happened was this Volkswagen um, Beetle, the, the suspension under it, was designed for the German road system before World War II, which was pretty poor, had a lot of ruts and bumps. And so the people who worked on that car needed to build something that could survive those roads and be lightweight and easy to manufacture. And they built 22 million of these Beetles. Well, in the late 60s, uh, someone decided to take one off-road and start racing it. And they made it lighter by cutting off the front and back sheet metal, which gave it better approach angle and departure angle. And the steel fenders don't accommodate very large tires and they're kind of heavy. So the steel fenders go away and you get these lightweight fiberglass fenders and a fiberglass hood and a little visor. And so there's a car culture of 50 years of experience of taking um, Volkswagen bugs and making them into these, these off-road cars. And it used to be you could get a running bug for 500 bucks and it was a super easy kid project. Um, today, my rusty, barely running donor was more like 2,500 bucks. And that was four years ago. And now they're even more expensive. Um, and people also kind of give you the stink eye if you say made one recently because they think it's kind of a travesty to cut up a Volkswagen bug. Because even though they made 22 million of them, there aren't that many good ones left that are easy to come by. This one had been crunched on the front and the rear. So I, I basically was sawing off wrinkled clips. And so people were fine with that. And so at the end of the day, you get a car that's a little bit lighter than the original car. Um, you modify the suspension basically by changing the preload to raise it. You don't have to change any components. You can raise the car just by adjusting it. And um, I did disc brake conversion and some other uh, things to make it a little more modern and, and safer. But uh, that's basically what a Baja is. Um, and whether or not it has an electric motor or a gas motor is kind of irrelevant. I just learned something. Yeah. I know you didn't, but I did. Um, <laughs> So you made them, you did the disc brake conversion, you did a couple other things. Did you do anything super substantial when you were doing the Baja conversion that people wouldn't know about just by looking at it? Yeah, it's the, um, the, the reference book, um, which um, he recommends some, some welding you can do on the suspension because a lot of the components are sheet metal that is basically has a flange and is kind of tacked or spot welded together. And it's really okay for over-the-road use, but it'll split when you take it off-road. So there's a lot of seal welding, um, you know, several pounds of wire and just sealing those up. The trailing arms in the back are um, very lightweight, so those get boxed out. And he says, yeah, you want to box out your trailing arms, and here's basically what it should look like when you're done. I'm like, oh, it's all these weird shapes. You go online, you can buy the box-out kit for $26. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it comes in the mail, and it's all these laser-cut pieces of steel that go together around your trailing arms, and you just kind of weld it on. And, and so and my son and I boxed off the trailing arms in a couple of hours. So like I said, this, the culture of Baja conversion parts is really, really strong even today. Interesting. And you made a mention that they're not, there aren't as many beetles out there, but am I wrong? Don't they still manufacture them like in Mexico? 
The last one was built in 2003 in Mexico. Okay. Yeah, and that's also slightly like he talked earlier. There's a standard Beetle chassis and then there's a Super Beetle. Uh -huh. So they stopped making a standard chassis quite a while oh, ago. Okay. And they went to a Super Beetle and they mm -hmm. continued that one. The Super Beetle is like different suspension. Mm -hmm. Stuff yeah. looks yes. similar, but it's, it's very different. Um, it is very different. Yeah. That's a good point. They, the, the, the standard Beetle and the Super Beetle overlapped for four or five years there in the early 70s. But the uh, the Super Beetle was built to have a smaller turning radius and more trunk space, and they used a McPherson front front suspension, which really won't survive uh, meeting a curb. It's really really lightweight, um, and so the rocks and kinds of things that we run into on some of these courses are pretty tough on those cars. So the standard Beetle is what you want for a Baja conversion. Mm. Yeah. So you just brought up something interesting you said for our courses so but you built this not knowing you were going to rally cross it right that's right so <laughs> uh, here's how we go down that trail so completed the car in the spring of 2017 and our first event was taking it to the greenwood car show where it was we were invited to go join the uh um seattle uh, electric vehicle association's little pavilion paddock at the uh at the greenwood car show and so we got all cleaned up and took to the show. We didn't win any awards, but it was fun to, to meet some people. But while it was all clean and shiny and parked in uh, my parking lot, I, I came out one day and there was a business card tucked underneath the windshield wiper. And I thought, that's interesting. And I flipped it over and, and it was from Keto. And he says, this is a really interesting car. Why don't you check out our webpage? Maybe you could come uh, be part of one of our off-road events. How did I not know I don't know how you did not know it, but yeah. uh, so he had, a, he had a dirt fish sticker up in the window oh. as well. So I was like, okay, so uh, uh, he knows what we're doing. That's so you know, that, I mean, that's kind of the problem with rally is it's like, oh yeah, we run, you know, rally program. And they're like, oh yeah, what kind of protest do you do? Right. Like, um, right. So yeah, so it's a little different than that. So you <laughs> so, had, had you done a dirt fish class before? That's yeah, yeah. I, I did a dirt fish class partway through the build because I wanted to get some experience uh, tossing a car around that wasn't my car. Um, and and uh, so that, <laughs> that was the main thing. So for my birthday, uh, the family, we went down to dirt fish, had a great time and couldn't resist putting some stickers on the car. And I, I think that's you know, it looks like a big Easter egg and it has big orange dirt fish stickers on it now. So it, it's easy to spot. So it was really cool of Keto to, to take it the time to come across the parking lot and just probably was randomly driving by and spotted it. And uh, we that's when we started to correspond about, well, it's electric. What do you think about that? And he's like, oh, well, I, I, we should we should think about that. Yeah. 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 I, drove, I drove by and I realized that there was something missing down by the engine. And I was like, something's not quite right. It was in my truck and it was too high. So I stopped my truck and got out and like poked my head down there and was like, oh, that's not what I was expecting to see. <laughs> you so, know, uh, this yeah. happens. Like we'll be out there. I have a picture of him in the middle. I'm in, sitting in the middle of like a highway in California and he's off. Um, there was something for sale in a gas station parking lot. He's like, I gotta go check that out. So we go check it out. Like, we had our huge truck and trailer and he was like, I'll just park here. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll wait in the car. Like, <laughs> there you go. There yeah. We have similar, except for the kids and I tool around. We see something interesting with all of this experience now and, and learning how to weld and bolt things together and solder and whatnot. The kids will approach other interesting cars or car builders and say, that's an interesting car. You know, can you tell me about it? 
And, and I love that they can ask really good questions. You know, they ask educated questions around, well, have you, you know, what did you do about this? And have you, you do any competitions and how do those work? And so I really enjoy, like at the Greenwood Car Show, I really didn't have to talk to anybody. The kids were out front explaining all the builds to people. And it, we had a little poster board that they could point to. Um, but I think it really builds that kind of uh, social aspect of car culture that's on the wane, actually, you know, amongst that generation. Yeah, I, I would agree. I want to table the conversation about electric cars and rallycross. We'll come back to that. So we're putting a pin in that one. But I would love to talk a little bit about the experience of bringing your kids into this project. How old were they when you even, when they conned you into doing a build? <laughs> right. Yeah, so we, we had these ideas in uh, basically September of 2016. And by the middle of October, we'd found a car. And by the end of the, I think, the third week in October, the engine was out and I had traded it for um, a charging cable for a Tesla car, actually. Um, so, we, yeah, um, I had a friend whose friend worked at the Tesla dealer and they had a scrap charging cable and he needed a motor for his bus. And so I said, oh, I got the 1600 dual port. He's like, cool, I got this Tesla cable. So that, was, that worked out great. Um, so we worked together um, kind of nights and weekends and over the Christmas break. And we were on the road with it by May of the next spring. So it was about uh, it's about a seven month build. So that's fast. Yeah. And your son yeah. had his driver's license, and your daughter did not, right? So. Correct. Uh, wait, um, no. Let's see. They were only thirteen and fifteen by then. So yeah, they were they were not. You know, Nate was just getting his driver's uh, permit when we got the car on the road. And so were you sort of. Um, what was your level of encouragement when it's like Saturday and they want to go do something else? Were you having to sort of force them or were they really into working on this with you? No. Um, and I'm going to be fair and say that they, they participated when they felt like it and when it seemed interesting. Yeah. And um, we learned, you know, my son was more interested in the suspension assembly and the mechanism and bushings and bearings and bolts and torque and things. And didn't really care for banging on metal or sanding or welding or noisy things. Um, daughter, for whatever reason, just thought welding is the coolest thing ever. And so, I, you know, some of the pictures on my my um, Instagram profile are daughter with her uh, ponytail under the welding hood. Um, funny story, actually. So our, our first day, we, we got the car up on jack stands and the kids are like, where do we start? And I said, well, we just got to start on bolting stuff and putting in piles. And so daughter said, well, I'll do the running boards. And she's, I said, great, there's the creeper. So she gets on the creeper and rolls into the car, rolls over her hair. Oh. Ouch. Yeah. So she comes out from under the car and she says, I can now tell which of those car shows are fake because the women who don't have their hair up in a ponytail, they're not actually working on the car. <laughs> well, or the guys. There, there are or the guys. <laughs> as well. And by the way, your daughter is right. Welding is like the coolest. <laughs> <laughs> and you knew how to weld before all this, right? Yeah, I, I knew how to weld. So I um, I borrowed a machine because I couldn't really justify owning one. So borrowed a machine and the kids, yeah, there was, I would say, hey, Saturday, here's some lists of things I'm thinking I'm working on. What do you want to join me in? And they'd come out and work on it. And I absolutely didn't push it because I didn't want them to feel like it was a drag or something that they had to do. I wanted them to be a part of if they thought it was cool. And if they didn't think it was cool, that is totally fine. You know, totally fine. And then when it came to racing, I was just very, very chill about that. They came and spectated. And when it when they got old enough to be able to get down there with their permit, then we did um, Nate's first experience was at the uh, 
the um, Dirtfish weekend in the middle of July, you know, Rallycross Fest. And so he got some on-the-course training from instructors, which he really appreciated. Daughter was more like, I think I'm going to get in and just try and see how this thing works and just just try stuff. Um, and so she's been less psyched to go to the actual, like, more formal training. So it's been really interesting to see how they approach it. So prior to me dropping a business card into your uh, windshield wiper, um, what were you guys doing with the vehicle? Well, I didn't really intend for it to be a daily driver. Um, you know, through the project, it was more, um, it's kind of funny. So it was like anti-engineering, you know, in my professional life, it's like organizing and schedules and math and all this. And I deliberately did the least amount of math and measuring I could get away with on this project. Uh, almost everything was eyeball, um, you know, thumb measure, piece of wood. We did a lot of cardboard, uh, uh, CAD, you know, uh, cardboard aided design, you know, cut out cardboard and whatnot. And so I didn't really think through the exit strategy of the project very well. Um, I did think that if we didn't find a good use for it, um, we could take the, the electric conversion out and put it in a nice little convertible bug, um, you know, just a regular road bug, and that'd be fun to go get ice cream with on the weekends. Uh, but then when my son turned 16 and he needed a car to drive, um, we agreed it'd be safest for him to take my gas car, uh, you know, modern Volkswagen and drive that, which meant that I had to drive this one every day because that was the only other car left. Um, so it turned into a daily at that point. Now I have 26,000 miles on it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. Wow. So I don't know much about electric cars, so you can talk to this in whatever level of detail makes sense. But how do you decide on range i you said you got a, a conversion kit but do you mm -hmm. know what kind of range you're getting with that kit or do you get to make a bit of a judgment call there yes actually to, to a kind of a nerdy aspect is the, the the kits from ev west most of them they supply like for the the bug for example they have a drop-in battery box that's sized to fit a um lithium iron phosphate battery which are um commercially available they make them new that you can just buy them off the shelf um, but as I got to talking to the to the crew down there and we were talking about this project, they asked, well, can you fabricate? I was like, well, yeah, I got to fabricate a lot of stuff. Like, all right, we're not going to sell you those batteries. We're going to sell you these other batteries that are way better, but you're going to have to build your own battery box because we, we don't have anything planned for that. So these, these Calbi cells that you can get, lithium iron phosphate, they are very modular. You need about 30 or 40 of them to get 100 miles of range. Um, but you can put some in the front and some in the back and all that. The... The batteries I ended up with are, are takeouts from um, either a Tesla Roadster or a Smart 4.2 EV, and they're really awkward. They're they're like 40 inches long and seven inches tall and two or three inches wide, and they really don't fit in the trunk or in the back. So I ended up putting them under the driver's seat and the passenger seat, and I could fit eight modules in there, which gives me an around town range of about 70 to 75 miles, um, 60 or 65 on the freeway. And then um, all weekend in the mountains. You know, when we go on trail rides where you're not driving very fast, we can go on a on a you know black diamond trail with a bunch of jeeps all weekend and not have to recharge because it's all about the wind drag. Really, it's that's what sucks up the horsepower. But otherwise, it's really a matter of how many batteries you can squirrel away in the car somewhere and how much you're willing to spend. I'll be honest that my batteries uh, the um, they store about the equivalent amount of energy as three gallons of gasoline, but they were $6,000. Yeah. Three yeah. gallons of gas. 
You want to drive 75 miles, it takes about three gallons of gas. So these range numbers seem kind of low, but what's interesting and what I found is I actually have reverse range anxiety, I call it, because I plug the car in at night and it's always gassed up, gassed up in the morning. And I have the same daily drive, which is only about 35 miles. So it's half the range. I, I can plug it in at work if I need to, but otherwise I just plug it in when I get home. And I never have to think about whether I have to make extra time to stop for gas in the morning on my way to a meeting. Oh, I, you know, I'm late for work. Do I have, can I stop for gas or do I have to try to try to ghost in on fumes? It just, I just get in and drive. So I, I challenge anyone who's concerned about range to actually look at their mileage log and see how many miles they drive per day. And if you can plug in at home when you get home and it charges up overnight, you really only need maybe 150% of your daily typical drive to be really pretty comfortable. But yeah, and so the, if you saw, I had a very furrowed brow for a hot minute. The, the, the comparison of three gallons of gas to your batteries isn't really fair because you use your, you can charge your batteries and use them for many. Over months. and over and over again. So, so the safety corollary is on that. Let's say if we had a, a, a terrible accident or rallycross course and the whole gas tank cracked you know, in a car and caught fire, you'd have a huge fireball. Um, here, there's just not that much energy stored. And secondly, um, I've already paid for the battery pack with gasoline I haven't purchased. Mm-hmm. So four or five years into the project now, I'm actually driving f- kind of for free until these batteries conk out and then I'll have to make another battery investment. Yeah, there's a lot of things I didn't really think about before I started uh, driving an electric car that, that are, are just really different. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's actually a good point. So <clears throat> when we first started talking and having you race with us, we had a lot of concerns about the electricity of it all. And, you know, um, you know, obviously you can't see the electricity. And so, you know, the concern about, you know, getting shocked or so on. And I think <clears throat> over time, our comfort level, everybody's comfort level is just, ticked up. I think people are more familiar. And I know like when I was working with the, you know, the SCCA on their board, there was a lot of talk, a lot of concern. What if it rolls over in a puddle? What if it's this? And, you know, and I do remember talking to people sort of trying to, you know, get electric cars moving and saying, well, you know, all these cars out here have 10 gallons of some of the most volatile fuel (laughs) that known to man. And, you know, those little puny fire extinguishers, I mean, you could take all of them on the course and it won't put out a gallon of gas. You know, these guys have 10. And so, you know, um, I think that the concern level, you know, obviously we still want to keep things safe and, you know, have, have some holes in place. But definitely, I would say the concern level drops. And I think as people get more familiar that, that the, same, the same will happen just kind of across the board. Well, you did a lot of work with someone who works with batteries professionally and asked a lot of questions about how could we write our rules in such a way that someone like you or the course workers, if something happened with your car, were not at risk. And yeah. you did a lot of work there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 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 I think you're right. I think in, in even these three and four years that have passed, the number of Teslas on the road, the number of Leafs on the road, the Kia Neros that are on the road, Fiat 500Es. I mean, all of these cars just becoming commonplace. You don't really even turn your head anymore to, to notice whether it's a gas or electric version. So people are becoming more comfortable with them in general. And I think part of that is because you don't really hear about bad safety situations that are attributable to the electrics. 
I mean, it's been a while since the internet has blown up because there is some car on fire on the side of the freeway. And, you know, it happens, but I don't think it happens as often as it does with gasoline powered cars. And yeah, I think, I think from a safety perspective, I feel just fine putting my kids in this car and, you know, us roosting around at 35, 40 miles an hour on your course. I think it's, I feel very good about it. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You built this car, this weirdo left you a business card and you came out and raced it for the first time. Were you, did you make any special mods to the car once you knew you were going to rally cross or did you just come out and you were like, all right, let's see what happens. Um, I had some thoughts around tires. Uh, When I first was building the car, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it, but I was talking to friends at work who um, do some fire roading fire roading it's called so they go up and they they blast around on the on the single track fire roads up in the national forest and they said we run snow tires um and you know they're cheap and they have pretty stiff tread blocks and they're cheap <laughs> so when i first built the car i, I put it on some firestone uh, winter force snow tires and i came out and, and and i thought well i'll just see how those go on the gravel at the rally course um and i think it worked pretty well um, I brought my little handheld programmer so I could change some software in between runs if I wanted to change the torque profile or the horsepower profile. Um, there's a lot in this car with brake bias. Um, we have mechanical or hydraulic brake bias front to rear. We can also change the brake bias with the software. So I wasn't sure how, how much of that would be really, really noticeable. And um, I ended up running it pretty similar to the way I do on the street, although. I thought it'd be really cool to have a lot of engine braking. I thought when I let off the throttle, because I watched 10 minutes of YouTube and I thought, okay, now I'm a rally driver. Um, So I'm like, okay, I want to do a rally turn. So I'm going to lift, turn and wait, you know, from, from Dirtfish, got their instructions, right? So if I lift and I want the car to go light and start to turn, I think I want to have like a high compression engine kind of feel to it so that I get some engine braking. So it'll come loose. It turns out that, um, that's a lot more useful on the street than it is on the gravel. So I ended up dialing way back on the amount of regen braking. Um, otherwise, the car would brake loose and oversteer too early. Um, so that was an adjustment I made. And after my first season, um, I bought a great set of, of Max Sport tires from Keto and uh, RB3Ds, and I've been running those. And, and that made a further improvement in my time uh, being on better tires. I think partly because the car sits about three inches lower to the ground with those tires, wow. which is, um, I think, very appropriate for the rally course. Um, and so you can see that on these, in this picture. I'm running the rally tires in that picture, and they, uh, it, it does make the car uh, sit a little bit lower and works great in the gravel. Other than that, I haven't made any, I haven't made any changes that I, uh, that I can recall. Wow. Do you find that you have the same experience as other competitors? Like if some, if an area is giving people a challenge, does that same area give you a challenge or does your car sort of handle differently? I, I had quite a pitched battle at the um, Hannigan Speedway in early September, which was very entertaining uh, weekend. And uh, I was able to hold on to second place and, and take home a, a, my second place trophy, which was really cool. But one of the drivers I was battling with uh, runs at BMW and he we were trying to figure out, you know, I was two seconds faster than him on every lap. And he's like, this is, I was like, where am I losing two seconds to this guy? And we talked about it. And what we found is that he had to slow down um, in a hairpin back in the woods where it was really rough just because of boulders. 
and his car was banging on boulders because he didn't have the ground clearance where my kids were like, oh, no, yeah, we just go full throttle through there <laughs> because we have 10 inches of ground clearance and we can sail over those bigger rocks that other people are feeling like they need to, they at least hesitate and decide what to do. And sometimes they hesitate and they try to steer around it. And that, that all takes time. And, uh, and we, we can, so that's one area where I think it's actually an advantage uh, to have the higher ground clearance car. Uh, the other difference is that um, the, the torque is instant because of the electric motor. So it's much easier to control um, a skid or steer or move from understeer to oversteer because you can modulate the throttle and turn on the torque with no turbo lag and, you know, the engine doesn't have to rev up. And so that's made it a lot more drivable because you just, you can just do, it just responds instantly compared to a gas car. So I think that's an advantage as well. Yes, you brought up a point earlier <clears throat> that you uh, have a programmer that you can change the power curve. I think a lot of people don't understand that with electric motors, it's actually even easier than it is with a internal combustion engine to actually dial in characteristics. Um, so, um, what, what, what the package that you got? What did you end up running? Like, you see so many of these packages now they use a Tesla motor or Tesla batteries or this, what did you, what did you end up getting from EV West exactly? Like for motor and I, you talked about the Tesla battery, but like the controller and all that. Sort sure. Of sure. Yeah. The, um, the motor package I've got is it's an AC 50 from Curtis and they are made in China and they are made expressly for converting cars to electric drive. Mm -hmm. um, they make a whole range of motors. Mine's kind of in the middle of the pack. It's about 80 horsepower and 130 pound-feet of torque. It's an AC servo motor, so like the Tesla motor, which means that the controller for it is actually an inverter. It takes the DC power from the batteries, converts it to alternating current, and then feeds that to the motor so it can control the RPM and the power. Um, this motor is good because um, it's a good frame size to bolt onto the back of these air-cooled transaxles. So I actually have a stock transaxle in the car still with four speeds, which side note, also an advantage was teaching the kids to drive a stick shift, uh, right? Cause that's not very easily done these days anymore. And so I, I have this, um, we have a, we have a stockish transaxle that we rebuilt. So um, that's an easier packaging job than trying to fit like a Tesla front drive motor in the back of that car where you need different axles and CV joints and all of that stuff. This just basically, it's all stock from the flywheel forward or, or can be. So, um, so that's what they recommended. And I said, well, 80 horsepower, that doesn't sound like very much. And I'm like, well, you got a 2000 pound car. I think you'll find it'll be plenty. And I'm like, yeah, really? And I'm like, it'll be fine. Okay. Um, and then when they put that kit in a standard Beetle, just a street Beetle, it'll go 100 miles an hour and get 100 miles of range. They said, you're not going to be able to go that fast or go that far because you've dorked it all up with these huge fenders and big tires and a roof rack and all these other draggy things. They said, you got to lower your expectations a little bit. So they, they were pretty much exactly right there. Um, Today, if you were to do this conversion and you bought that kit, you could do that motor, or they would probably recommend moving up to a NetGain Hyper 9, which is um, 120 horsepower and 180 pound-feet of torque, um, which is, uh, that's a lot of motor. Um, wasn't available at the time I did my conversion, and if it was, I might not have selected it because I think that's probably more than the stock transaxle could take. 
Um, in fact, I blew up my um, differential um, even with the 80 horsepower motor um, because the, the tires on dry pavement with 100% torque, the thing that loses is either the CV joints or the differential. So um, you can you can dial it down a little bit, but I think that's a good uh, a good combination, and it's it's cheaper than a Tesla motor. Uh, that motor and controller is a four or five thousand dollar package. Um, so the major components of the kit are four or five thousand in the motor controller, five thousand or so in batteries, um, depending on how far you want to drive, and then another couple thousand in charger uh, wiring and things like that. You know, a lot of people think, okay, I can buy these mechanical components, put it in there, but then I don't know, I don't know what to do. Like, you know, um, I am assuming that you had to change out like your accelerator pedal to, you know, rheostat style, I'm assuming. Yeah. And yep. Uh, a controller and a readout somewhere maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There are, um, there's definitely a different look on the inside. Uh, the gas pedal, um, you, you take the gas pedal out of your car, which means you don't need the, uh, the uh, throttle cable anymore. And instead, uh, you get a Prius pedal. Um, EV West goes and scours, you can buy them anywhere, but what EV West does is goes and scours junkyards for used uh, Prius pedals, and that comes in your kit for 25 or 30 bucks. Um, so you mount that to the firewall, and it plugs into their wiring harness, and, and now you have an accelerator pedal. Does it feel the same when you're driving? You're making it sound like a mystical thing. It feels like a Prius pedal. <laughs> it, it does feel like a Prius pedal. Um, Compared to the mechanical uh, throttle cable through a metal tube that you get on a stock, you know, 50-year-old car, um, it's nice and smooth. And, of course, um, a, a key Baja modification is the roller gas pedal. That's really important. Um, it, it, so you look in there, and, and back in the day, they were actually made from skateboard wheels. So why do you have a skateboard wheel on your gas pedal? And I talked to a racer who said, well... In the Baja 1000, for example, you're driving a thousand miles nonstop in dusty conditions, and the friction between your foot and the gas pedal is really tiring. And he showed me his right shoes, and every single one of them was worn through on the bottom from abrasion on the pedal. So the roller pedal is really easy on your ankle, and it also, I thought, well, that's going to make it much easier to modulate the throttle because I have all this great engine control. If I want to move, you know, when we do our obstacle course work, you can drive at five RPM. You can go to nine RPM if you want to. You can go to 49 RPM if you just need a little bit more. And so being able to modulate that, that the Prius pedal works great for that. I don't think you could do that with a mechanical pedal. You got all this tension and linkage and yeah. yeah. It's just, that's just better. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You have a brake pedal though, right? This isn't like a <laughs> Nissan Leaf. Nope, so correct. Can you guess how the brake pedal comes into play with uh, regeneration? Sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, so at a high level, what's really interesting is, yes, it does have a stick shift and a clutch, um, clutch brake and, and gas pedal, but you can also drive it essentially single pedal driving, which is what makes it such a great commuter car on the freeway, because there's no idle. When you come to a stop, you don't have to push the clutch pedal in, because there's no idle. You can't stall it. It just stops turning, right? And so I didn't even think about this before I started driving the car and I was trying to teach my kids to drive the stick. We'd get to the stop sign and like, don't forget to put the clutch put piddle in clutch, clutch, clutch. And they're like, why? I'm like, Oh yeah, that's. <laughs> so I, I, I can program an idle. So it will keep running and you have to remember to put the clutch pedal in, but, but why? So, so getting back to your question about the braking. Um, so the brakes in the beetle, that's a hydraulic 
a dual circuit brake system in this car. So there's a front circuit and a rear circuit. Um, highly recommended, by the way, in case you lose a rear brake line oh. when you're bombing down the rallycross course. Uh, <laughs> if you have a single circuit system, that can be not good. Mm -hmm. um, so you press on the brake pedal and it puts hydraulic fluid back to the um, calipers in the back, just like regular. But along the way, um, it passes through a fitting which has an electronic sensor on it that's um, a pressure transducer. And the computer on the motor is looking at how hard you're pushing on the brakes. And it will dial in regen braking proportional to the amount of brake pressure that you're applying. So if you're just easy on the brakes, you can have a little bit of regen. And if I really stomp on it with both feet, let's say, then it will put, it can put 100 amps into that motor backwards and just throw out the anchor. Mm. Wow. So programming that variable with how sensitive it should be to the brake pedal um, took a, a, a couple of weeks of driving to kind of dial in. That's interesting. Yeah. So it also knows. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so what? you you, you uh, end up having to program brake regen, but you also program power delivery too. Yeah, this controller is really straightforward. There's only about five parameters. There's um, how how fast do you want it to react to a throttle input? Um, if you jack it way up, the car is is really squirrely, um, but your horsepower comes up quickly. Or um, actually, I have a switch on the dash for kid mode. You flip the switch, and it kind of calms everything down, so that it doesn't react as as swiftly to the. So there's that time. Then there's the maximum amount of current that the motor can draw, and so in race mode, you you run that all the way up to 11, of course. Um, but kid mode will cut that in half or wherever you want to set it. Um, and then there's the amounts of regen that you want um, for braking. There's a different amount when you put the clutch in. Um, and there's a switch I put on the clutch so that when you shift, when you clutch in, the motor will slow down kind of similarly to a gas motor so the synchros can mesh. Um, otherwise, the motor is going to basically keep spinning at whatever speed it was at because it doesn't slow down very quickly unless you tell it to. So there's very so there's a couple parameters around that. Well, that's pretty much it for programming. And EV West gives you a little poop sheet with kind of suggested starting settings, and they pre-program it for you. So it'll it'll drive as soon as you plug it in. And if you want to fiddle with it, you can actually interact with the programming through a date a gauge in the dash. Um, you don't even need an external programmer. You can do it right in the the instrument that comes with it. So all this all these features come in that that one kit. All, it all comes in that one kit. For instrumentation up front, you have a there's a digital tachometer that also lets you scroll through things like the motor temperature and your peak current and peak, you know minimum voltage and some other interesting things. And then um, there's a an e meter that's measuring how much energy is coming and going from the battery, and that's basically your gas gauge. So you look at that and see how much energy you've consumed, and those are both two and a half inch diameter gauges that you should, you can put wherever you want um, in the car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went on EV West, um, their website pretty recently, and take a look at what they got going on. They have like full packages now where you can buy like the whole Tesla drivetrain, drop it in. They have plug and play converters, and now AEM as like uh, a version of their standalone ECU for gas engines. They have one that can be daisy chained together for electric. So you can just up the kill voltage however, how, however high, I think you can get up to eight. I think they said you can daisy chain together. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is really something that's starting to, 
starting to take off. And I definitely think EV West is uh, kind of leading that charge as well. You know. I think within the U.S., they're one of the definitely the leading players, and they're supplying people all over the world. You know, if you watch some of the interesting um, Motor Trend channels or and other channels about people doing conversions, a lot of them are sourcing similar equipment. So it feels like we're a year or two or three into the hot rodding of electric vehicles, and I, I've seen some really interesting show cars where they've converted old hot rods to electric. Um, converting your old Rolls Royce is now a thing, which I think is. It's so perfect. It is. <laughs> it's so perfect. I mean, the whole point of driving Rolls Royce is to not hear the engine and just go. Yeah. Right? And so imagine. I mean, I have to say, when you are racing, so during races, I run timing. And one of the things that's most important is knowing how many cars are on course. And you throw off my program every single time because I can't hear you. So I don't Can't know hear it. who started, and then there's all of a sudden another car on course. I have a little counter. He says, how many cars are on course? And I'm like, well, something's wrong. Damn it, something's wrong. And it's, it's always your fault. Always my fault. <laughs> there's actually, to be clear, there's nothing wrong. Everything's fine. <laughs> well, it's funny. I didn't realize it until we were at Hannigan, and I was co-driving with my daughter that um, we were talking about the course, and I was narrating as I was driving, um, even during the practice lap. And we can do that without radio headsets, even at speed. Because there's no engine noise. And I didn't really even realize that until just this year of like, wow, this is so much more comfortable to drive and communicate and talk about what's happening in the car without all that extra radio headgear. Um, So, you know, it's just all kinds of different. (laughs) So let me ask you this. If you were to uh, start this project all over again, fresh, having Mm -hmm. not bought a car or anything yet, um, what what would you do differently, if anything? Boy. I think I am, I am so tickled with how this turned out and the experience of it. I think I would probably do it very similarly, except for upgrade to that, that net gain Hyper 9 motor, um, because I did end up having to build a race transaxle anyway. The transaxle was the one part of the car I didn't modify or get into when we built it. And the stock gears, the ratios were just not good for taller tires. So we ended up having to change the ring and pinion. And while we we're in there, we put race gears in. And now it's it's good for a 200 horsepower motor. So I could go upgrade to that net gain motor, which also is waterproof. Mm-hmm. If you ever notice, if you look at the back of my car, you can look in the end of the motor and see the copper. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you know long I'm going to get away with that. Um, I do try to take it careful with the pressure washer around there. Um, but the net gain motor is IP65, which means it's washed down rated, so you can hose it down. And I think that would be a, a much better choice uh, for Rallycross as we get into these October and November events where it's muddier and wetter. Interesting. So let's talk about one another issue kind of people have with electric motors real quick, and that's um, power steering, AC, these sort of things that are normally driven off of, mm-hmm. of a gas motor that stays running all the time. Um, Solutions for that stuff. Solutions. Okay. So there's a hardware solution and there's a software solution. The hardware solution that you get, um, if you look in some of these uh, cars that have those uh, powered accessories, is basically an aluminum plate that goes between the motor and the transaxle um, that has mounting places for all of those other pumps and accessories. Mm-hmm. And it's belt driven and it looks just, those things don't even know they're not in a gas car. Mm-hmm. So air conditioning, compressor, power brake, pump, all that stuff can be driven off. Um, and basically they put that plate on the back of the motor. 
So the front of the motor can go up against the transmission and the back of the motor has that. And it ends up in the same configuration as a gas motor. And then you need to program an idle so that stuff stays running when you're at zero speed, um, which is very straightforward. Um, you just tell it, I want 628 RPM at idle and that's what it does and just keeps that stuff running. So it's really straightforward. Mm, yeah, that's, the Beetle, of course, not needing any of those made that project easier. But yeah. along the way, I was like, how do they do that? And that's how they do that. Right. And I also saw, I saw another project somebody did and they converted to an electric power steering unit. So they took away the hydraulic, mm. have the inline um, unit. I think they took it like from Saturn View or something like that. And then I also saw them run um, an electric uh, compressor for the air pump, like something similar to what you'd see like in a refrigerator or something like that, that wasn't driven off of the motor. Not Yeah, that's another way to do it. And if you, of course, look in a modern gas car, most of those accessories are electric driven today. They're not engine driven with belts anymore because it's less efficient. You And they're constantly trying to drive up those, those mileage numbers. Mm. So having those electric driven components, and that just makes the conversion easier because you can just bolt those in. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of the race bugs have electric uh, power steering racks up front as a as an upgrade for them because it's fatiguing to drive a lot of miles uh, without power steering. Mm. Um, and another thing that comes up is heat. How do you have heat when you don't have coolant anymore? Mm. Uh, and if you have a, a coolant car, uh, let's say a Mazda Miata, I have a friend with an electric conversion Mazda Miata. You can buy an electric coolant heater that just goes into the system and it runs off the traction pack and heats the coolant. And then your fans and everything work just like they did. On our car, we bought an electric heater and put it up front and we run it off the traction pack and it blows hot air backwards through the air system, the basically the stock heat system. So another advantage to electric cars is the heat turns on instantly when you get in them in the winter. You don't have to wait for the engine to warm up. You get in and you flip the switch and there's hot air blowing in your face. So it's by far the best car I've owned overall in general, my whole life. I think she's going to buy an electric don't car. Don't yeah, yeah. Katie, you'll love, this is even better. If you get a modern electric car, most of them have an app where you can talk to the car from your phone. And so while you're making coffee, you can turn the heat on from the kitchen and it will just turn the heat on in the car while it's still plugged into the house and you're not even using range to heat the car up. Oh. And it's toasty, warm and fully charged when you get in it. Smart. And they run the AC like that too. Yeah, I mean, sure, that's great. We don't live anywhere hot. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, Keto bought me a new Crosstrack, and the one requirement I had was remote start. And it was strictly for the reason so I could leave the heat on at night when I parked at night. Mm -hmm. All warmed up when I got it because nothing is worse than a cold car. Right. Right. But it has to, it's sitting in your driveway, getting zero miles per gallon, burning fuel, being stinky that whole time. It's true. That's very true. And it still takes five or 10 minutes to warm up. And so if you're hustling, you might have to have a, you're going to be cold for a second when you get in there. It's true. So, yeah. I'll also share another Katie funny car story. I had an old 80s BMW when I was in high school. I was a very poor kid. I bought it at a police auction. It did not have heat. And do you know that at Shucks, you can buy a tiny little heater that plugs into your um, cigarette lighter, and then you can suction cup mount it to your dashboard to keep your windshield clear. So yep. when I got a real job and was finally able to afford a car with heat, it was basically the greatest luxury I've ever experienced in my life. So now it's... A yeah, well, it, it pretty much does separate us from the cave people to be able to have heat. That's, that's, that's a big distinction. Well, another, you brought up air conditioning. And so, you know, you really don't find air conditioning on bugs anyway. 
but um, and it's not that hot out here, right? So you know, but what I noticed is I don't I don't miss air conditioning at all, and I kind of I thought about that, and part of it is because I don't have a 200 pound metal object that's hundreds of degrees in the car with me. Yeah. And I'm sitting in traffic and I'm figuring this out and I got my little thermal camera and the firewall is cold because there's no hot engine on the other side of it. So my heat, my feet don't get hot like they would do in my gas car where there's a motor in the, in the trans transaxle hub basically right there. So I think a lot of the air conditioning load in the summer is actually cooling the car down from the heat it's making from its own motor yeah. and electric motor. That's just another thing that goes away. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, as we wind down here, I'm curious if you have any tips or so one thing I spend a lot of time doing is putting together like packing lists for people for rallycross or sort of some pro tips if you're prepping for your first rallycross that, that can mm -hmm. sort of be an intimidating time. What if somebody is prepping for their first or one of their early races and they're coming out with an electric car? What are different things you have to think about that other people aren't prepping for? Um, I, I have to decide whether to bring the charge cable or not. So um, I don't have the range to drive to most of the courses. So I tow it behind a tow rig. And that's kind of for two reasons. One, I want to have full tank of battery when I get there. And second, if I damage the car, I, I still need to be able to get home. And so for the same reasons that other people tow. Um, but if it's a one-day event, I don't bring the charge cable. If it's a two-day event and I have an opportunity to plug in, maybe I'll bring the charge cable. And I have my own little list, which mostly includes all the same things you suggested, like the spare tires, uh, you know, the tire wrench, the jack, the water bottle. But I don't have anything that I bring that, um, you know, I don't have to bring the extra gas cans. Um, I don't bring any motor oil. I don't bring any coolant. Um, you know, I, I don't have to bring any, you know, plug wires or plug wrench or any of those things that I, th I see a lot of people fussing with um, on their lunch break. So I think it's really, it's, I think it's really, really uh, straightforward and has a shorter prep list than a gas car probably does. So two-part question here um, about this charging cable. First of all, um, how much uh, range do you suck out of your vehicle running an event? Um, and how fast uh, can you charge? Great question. So a, a typical one-day Rallycross event, which is uh, maybe uh, five runs per driver, or so, and if I'm dual driving or I've got more kids, we might be, have 10 or even 15 runs in the car. Um, and that'll usually use about half of our range capacity. So that's a total of maybe 20 minutes of track time, really 25 minutes total, um, but it's, it's a lot of full throttle time. So that'll use about half the range. Uh, so a two day event, it's getting pretty low by the end of the day. So um, being able to plug in overnight um, or at least on a lunch break is pretty helpful. As far as the recharge goes, um, the EV West kit that I installed has an onboard charger. And this is a little bit of a, a mystery to, to people that aren't very familiar with electric cars. But when you see an electric car charging station, that thing on the wall with the glowing lights on it is a charger that, you, that talks to your car and feeds it juice. So most electric cars, a lot of them don't have chargers on board. Um, I, we have a charger on board. And that lets us plug into either 110 volt power in your garage or 220 volt power in your garage. So if I bring my charge cable and we end up um, hanging out at, at Dirtfish overnight or something or going to someplace to camp, I can plug in and it'll 
at the campsite or, or just you know an extension cord from somebody's house. So I don't need to go find a place with a charger. So that's an advantage because I, none of your venues have EV charging sockets in the paddock area yet. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. Right. So there's three levels of charging. This is important for people to know. Level one is 110 volt, you know, just a regular wall socket. Uh, my car will take 14 hours to recharge on that from dead. So if it's all the way dead, it's, it's all night. Level two is 220 volts. You know, same thing you plug your dryer or your cooktop or your welder into. Um, it'll recharge in about seven hours with that. It's twice as fast. Um, and that's it for me. Um, the, the, the modern electric cars, most of them can do level three charging or DC fast charging, which will really dump in the juice. Those are the cars you can recharge on your, your, your long lunch break. Um, CV West, I talked to them. They're working on a universal DC fast charger retrofit, which I think would be great for racers to be able to go. And uh, someday when we have 400 volt, you know, kiloamp DC fast chargers available, in all these parking lots, we'll be able to top up um, in between runs or on lunch break, and you'll be able to go all week. So that that's around the corner for us. Yeah. So um, I, I talked with uh, the same guy before me about um, you know electrics and batteries and so on. And one of the things he was uh, explaining to me is that you can dump power into a battery to get a roughly eighty percent very quickly. And then the last 20% takes quite a bit. And so he, he always said the best design would be to be able to, you know, just fast charge it to 80, you know, and, you know, that, that's it. Don't waste your time on the final, the final 20 and just give yourself enough battery. Is that true? Like with your system, can you fast charge it? Or is that the level three that you were talking about? Yeah, that's a level three thing because my, my charger can only draw so many amps out of the wall. So it's not going to be able to charge up uh, any faster um, than the charger can accept juice. The batteries themselves can take electricity as fast as they can dish it out, more or less. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's some heating there. So one interesting aspect with that 80% um, charge is the, the resistance, depending on the battery chemistry, the, the batteries have more resistance as they get fully charged and warm up. And sitting at a higher temperature is bad for the batteries. So a lot of the battery, the car manufacturers will tell you, you know, cycle your batteries between 80% charged and 30% charged. That's kind of where you want to be for kind of maximum battery life. If you're always running them up to 100%, you have a little more range, but it, it takes measurable capacity out of your batteries over long periods of time because you're breaking down the cells faster by essentially charging them up fully. Um, and some batteries are more sensitive to that than others. Um, and, that, and that's why you would have a battery management system on board, which, which I don't have. Um, but, you know, most people would have something like that. My car is basically a big RC car. You plug it in and, and then you drive it around. It's not very sophisticated on the charging side of things. On that note, your car is lighter than the standard car, right? You can tow it actually with something smaller? Yeah, so it's close. Um, a stock 69 standard Beetle, I think, is 1,900 pounds, according to the nameplate. So just short of a ton. Okay. Uh, my car weighs 2,050 pounds. Um, it's just a little bit over. Um, most of that is because the stock, it, this is really interesting. The, the electric motor and the batteries weigh the same as the gas motor and the gas tank I took out. Oh, so that's a straight across trade. Wow. Um, handling wise, side note, I mean, whenever you talk about weight, you talk about balance, which we haven't talked about. The balance is super important for a rally car. Mm -hmm. um, I think a big difference between my car and Chase's car, which is a gas Baja, 
is the weight distribution on the gas Baja is really far aft because you have this, this gas motor that's behind the rear axle. It's about 285 pound motor back there. My motor is about 80 pounds back there. And most of the weight is in the batteries, which are in the middle of the car. So the weight distribution is actually a lot more uniform. And uh, Nate Tennis, the instructor at Dirtfish, who uh, took a couple of hot laps for me, commented on how much better balanced it was than he was expecting because uh, he was like, wow, that's, that's not you know, what I was expecting. I think that's a big part of it, um, is moving that forward. But the, it's really hard to beat the Volkswagen engineering for lightweight. The disc brakes I put on weigh twice as much as the drum brakes I took off. Oh, interesting. The uh, steel um, race wheels I have and those tires weigh almost three times as much per corner as the stock wheels and tires did. Wow. And then I put on a roof rack and I put about 80 pounds of sound deadening in to make it nice and smooth on the road. And so all of these things ended up um, making the car about 150 pounds heavier. If, if someone said, I want to buy a race prepared Rallycross Baja, EV Baja, I could probably do it for 1,600 pounds. Um, with that 120 horsepower motor and it would be really fast. That would be a really fun car to drive. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I assume just because it, it's quiet and it has a battery, you know, like, Oh, it's definitely going to be lighter. Right. I didn't even think about all the other stuff or the fact that the conversion is sort of an equal swap. Yep. Um, so you made a, you made a mention there that we didn't talk about balance. Is there anything else that someone who is thinking about this, whether for Rallycross or not, that you want to be sure they know before they get into it? I'd say um, make sure you understand what all of the elements are on that bill of material of whatever kit you're sourcing. Um, if you install components and you don't know what they do, if they don't work right away, you're gonna have a hard time debugging them. And the EV West guys are super busy they're super nice, but they're not going to be able to help you figure out what wire is not plugged in where it's supposed to go. So it's still a DIY type of scenario here, which is why um, there are outfits down in California like, um, oh, I'll think of another name. Um, I was trying to figure out if my car was an outrageously expensive project or, or you know, where did it come out cost-wise with the labor and all the rest. And we have about 15,000 in the conversion and another 15,000 in restoration. And so it's, it's a, a $30,000 investment. It's not, it's not zero. Um, but if you go to buy a converted Volkswagen bug, that's electric, the prices start at 50,000. And there's, I have, a, yeah, there's a lot of labor in there and expertise. So I would say, do some homework, understand what these things are, join a list, serve, join a group, uh, find a buddy who's done it before that really helped me out and make sure you understand what those components are. None of them are very complicated but you got to wire them properly. And if a wire pulls out, you're at a race event, no one in your social group is going to know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. You know, versus your Subaru 2.5 RS has a whatever funny sound. Everybody comes out of the woodwork and tells you what you need to do to fix that. This thing, you move one wire, one wire out of place, it's not going to charge or it won't start or whatever. So you need some level of expertise there. So I think it's not for people who, um, just want a turnkey get in the car and drive type setup yet. We're not quite there yet. Mm. So you would say that for a beginner, somebody's first first go at an EV conversion, a kit would definitely be the way to go. De definitely the way to go. There's a bill of material, all the parts you need are in the box, and the wiring diagram is excellent. It's color-coded, it's numbered, and they have all of the documentation available for download from the evwest.com website. So there's a PDF on every component in there and it 
I'm an engineer, and, and so it was probably quick for me to digest it. But I think most people that are pretty handy could do this conversion. There's only about six wrenches required for the whole car. You know, it's, it's really simple to work on. And I, I think it would be a great um, evening and weekend project for the winter. And I, I would love to see several of these on the course next year. So get on it. We've got winter and spring to get it going. So, so let me ask you this. Having done this conversion from a kit now, would you feel like you now know enough that you could maybe you know, put this together, you know, using components from here and there? I probably could, but I wouldn't. I think that the markup that EV West, I mean, you can take their bill of material and go hunt around online and find all the components and save a few bucks, um, which you, you could do. But honestly, for the, the few hundred bucks that you save, it's just so convenient that I think if I did another one, I would say, here's what I want in my kit. Put it together for me, please. And I will just wait a couple of weeks for them to put it together for me. Right. I really would. And, and I learned so much from those guys that I think ordering a second kit, I would learn even more. So I think I, I would do it again for sure. Mm, yeah. The other thing people have to remember is when you go hunt around on your own, you don't know what you're going to get. And Absolutely. And that's the lesson I learned from my, my friend who put me onto this. He says, I hunted around all winter and figured it all out, but I bought the wrong battery charger and I brought the, bought the wrong DC-DC converter and he couldn't return them. And that four or $500 was the margin that I paid on all the parts in my kit. Oh, so he's like, he, that's what he said. He's like, you could figure this out, but why? Just, you know, lean on their expertise. Yeah. What I want to see the kit that someone do, they have a kit for the uh, factory five cars. You know, their their AC Cobra and their Coupe and their Roadster. And those are all-wheel drive, and they use a Subaru um, for the donor car. But they put a Tesla motor on a Subaru drivetrain underneath a really swoopy tube frame body. And I think in Mod R or Mod All-Wheel Drive, that would be a really fun ticket. So I'm, I'm hoping somebody will gin up for that and, and build one of those. All right. Cool. So everyone has their homework assignment, <laughs> off-season projects, electric conversions. Ben and his friend are available to help. I'm pretty sure I heard that offered up there. I will def I'm definitely available with consulting. Love to talk about it, help you out. <laughs> Love it. Thank you for spending this time with us. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Ben H Ben Hempstead94. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. And uh, there's more professional stuff there, but there's some good information there as well. So I really appreciate the opportunity to market um, my kids and their project and this car and your sport and your team. I think you're doing great work and I'm super excited for the season to continue. Thank you, us yeah, too, so, all yeah. around. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. It helps us show up in the search results for other people who might be interested. And if you want to follow along with our race series, you can find us online at modracing.com or on Instagram and Facebook at modracing. Mod is spelled M-O-D-D -D because it's an acronym for motorsports and driver development. You can also check out more information about our winter series on nwrallyassociation.com and we will link to it in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next one.